Hi there, and welcome to The Creative Endeavor, the podcast bringing you inspiring stories from creative professionals from around the world. And before we get this episode underway, I just want to take a quick minute to explain my absence. You see, I've received a few emails and messages through social media from people who were concerned that I had gone dark and that I just dropped off the radar. Guilty. Yes, I did. I went up to the North Island for a week or so just to gather some research and some reference material for an upcoming commissioned project. And when I got back, I began to make those finishing touches to my gallery. Yes, that's right. If you didn't already know, if you didn't see that video a while ago on YouTube, I am opening my own gallery and it opens very, very soon. This December, in fact, in the small town where I live in Lawrence in the South Island of New Zealand. And I'm so excited about this. This is a huge turning point in my career. And it's just, I can't wait to open those doors and share this with people. Of course, it's been well over a year of working on this project, not to mention the amount of painting that I've had to do to just fill my own space, but it's been rewarding. And I'm really, really, really excited, but it required my full attention. And I'm still wrapping up the details of that project, but I'm going to share more of that with you in due course. So apologies for the absence. I missed you too. I promise next time I go dark, I will give you a warning in advance. Now, before we get on with the show, just another thing I would like to say, which is thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. And thank you so much for your feedback. It means the world to me. I've gotten a an overwhelming amount of positive messages coming through either via email or social media from people who are just really loving these podcasts and are actually finding them helpful. That's my mission here is to provide as much content for you as possible to actually make a difference to you and your creative journey. I hope this helps. I for one get an enormous amount out of these conversations that I'm having with artists around the world. I always find myself coming away with a new strategy or something else to apply to my art business. And I find them personally very, very valuable. So I'm so glad to hear that you are finding these helpful as well. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing this with me. Now, in today's episode of The Creative Endeavor, I'm talking to Sandro Kopp who's a fantastic artist and somebody that I've also been following on Instagram for some time. I'm fascinated by Sandro's work. He paints all kinds of really interesting things. And one of the projects that has particularly grabbed me in recent months, something that he's been working on for quite a while, are his portraits of eyes just one eye. And he describes this as both a transmitter and a receiver. It's really interesting work. Now, Sandro grew up in Germany and he moved to New Zealand when he was quite young. That's where his mother was from. And he now lives in Scotland. But painting and creating awesome artwork is only one small aspect of what Sandro does. He does all kinds of incredible things. He even works in film. In fact, he was one of the producers for the recent movie Okja. What I really admire about Sandro is his passion and his dedication to his creative practice. It really shows through in the way he talks. And I had a great time talking with him here in this episode. 
Our conversation ranged in our individual approaches to our own work in using photographic reference and the overall creative process, but also down to the, the purpose of art. Why are we making art? We even got into modern art and we had a really interesting exchange there with our views on that subject, but also the value and the money side of the art world and how it drives that machine. He also shared a lot of his personal story and how he makes it as a full-time creative professional. I think you'll find Sandro to be engaging, inspiring, and sincere. And I hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, here's Sandro Kopp in The Creative Endeavor. Sandro Kopp, welcome to the Creative Endeavor podcast. It is a pleasure having you on the show. Why don't you take a minute and tell us all about yourself, your art, maybe a little bit of your personal story and what has led you up to this point so far? Hey, Andrew, very happy to be here and thanks for having me. Um, I am a very international character in that I was born in Germany. My mum's a New Zealander. I've lived there for chunks of my life and for the past oh, 15 years now almost I've been based in the highlands of Scotland uh, near Inverness and uh, my work however takes me all over the place uh, most of my shows have been either in Paris or New York uh, at the moment I have a show on at the museum Palazzo Grimani in Venice that coincided with the Venice Biennale I am ostensibly a figurative painter, but I love making stuff and I love photographing. I love film. I am uh, always dipping my brush into different things and trying out other things. And it is actually pretty much all I've done so far. I had a very supportive mum, um, I'm called Sandro because she was a fan of Sandro Botticelli. Um, I, I was seven, I think, and she was so into my drawings. I was doing like dinosaurs and animals and stuff that she did a little exhibition at the offices where she was working. Um, I then went to school at a, at a sort of um, grammar school in Germany where I had two very, very good teachers who I'm extremely grateful to. Uh, and one of those kind of, I don't know, I, I spent all my classes just drawing all the time. Aliens, the other people in the class, comic books, you name it. Um, and my art teacher when I was 15 sort of realized that that slightly antisocial weird kid at least was doing something and should be probably supportive and gave me a, solo show uh in the corridor uh outside the teacher's lounge and this was a big school three and a half thousand students uh in germany and um in retrospect like it was that's you know i don't know anyone else who had that i um also am quite sure that he took some flack from the rest of the college because i was very into like 
Giga and stuff like that. And I had phalluses coming out of brains and all kinds of really dark stuff <laughs> that wasn't necessarily sort of a uh, uh, town gymnasium friendly in Germany. Uh, for me at the time, it's like, you know, I was 15. I was like, oh man, I have to stay late to hang my show after school. <laughs> I, I don't think I quite had the appreciation for it. But it gave me a sense of um, this is what I'm going to be doing. This is always, there's, there's just never really been anything else on the option. Then when I moved to New Zealand, I kind of did the usual picking apples or working on a sawmill and doing some odd jobs to make ends meet. But I was showing and exhibiting and selling from late teens. Um, so that's how I ended up here. I haven't, haven't really progressed since I was 19. That's what I'd say. You've just kept the gig going, though. It sounds like you've just you're you're one of these creative people that lives and breathes their art. And from following you now on on Instagram, I first found out about you through a friend of mine, a mutual friend of ours, Freeman White. Shout out to Freeman. Following you on Instagram, I, I've noticed that there there is quite a diverse range to your body of work. Um, I do want to get into the to the art side of things, maybe the technical aspects of what you do. But I'm really intrigued at the moment about these paintings of eyes that I see all over your Instagram feed. Can you tell me what that's all about? Yes, this is my current favorite thing. Um, I generally have a variety of different bodies of work on the boil simultaneously um what i call it is like i'm plowing separate fields and then one of the fields kind of grows up and there's a crop right for harvest and at the moment the eyes which i've been working on um pretty solidly for about two and a half years um but i was doing eyes before then um so they're one eye painted from life of friends and family there's no one I don't know in there. There's no one uh, there who I didn't uh, have a proper sit down with. I'll do about a two to three hour sitting um, and I'll take some photos during that. But I've tried doing it just from photographs without the sitting and it's extremely difficult. I, In general, this is one of the things that will run through all the stuff that we talk about in our conversation working from life is a, an absolutely key element to what i do and what makes my stuff work in the way that it does um photography is super helpful but whenever i i pull up that image to paint from it further it's always like a wormhole reconnecting me back to that moment of the sitting and being in the presence of that other person and that is very very key for me I ended up with um, about 120 paintings. I deselected four of them, two because they weren't good enough and two because I felt like I wasn't quite sure whether I wanted to keep working with them. So in the show, there's 116 paintings which are displayed in a um, amazing installation by the great architect from Florida, Alberto Alfonso who's a friend and huge supporter of mine who I couldn't be more grateful to. He came over there with a team of people. He had metal stands constructed because when you're in a 
you know, 16th century palazzo, of course, you can't bang nails in the wall. So everything has to be hung off the wall. And he is very heavily influenced by Carlo Scarpa, the great modernist architect. And so um, he and I, he came to Scotland first for a weekend uh, in the spring and we talked it through and then came up with this idea of having one room with green curtains and one room with just the metal structures holding the eyes on different levels so that as you move around the room, they move against each other. And then the paintings themselves are on small blocks. They're a variety of sizes uh, from 10 square centimeters square to 40 centimeters square. No, 30 square. 30 square is the biggest. And um, most of them are 15 by 15, I think. And um, so they've got this very small and precious vibe to them, which I've tried to further embellish by surrounding them with um, gold leaf, platinum leaf, silver leaf. I love, I love gold, as Goldfinger says, and no, Goldmember <laughs> says in Austin Towers. Um, <laughs> but I do. I, uh, I was about to say a bad word there, but I'm not going to. I right. very much love gold because <laughs> it has, it's like a shorthand. Like the minute you put gold leaf on something, you are tapping into a legacy of all the people who've used gold leaf, which predates oil painting by several thousand years. You know, think of Egypt, think of, you know, all the amazing kind of Byzantine icons, think of all the fantastic uh, Latin American uh, indigenous art. I say that speaking from a hotel room in Bogota, where I am at the moment. Um, and I'm discovering the amazingly rich cultural heritage here, which is very inspiring too. So gold immediately fires up a um, sort of connection with all these other elements of art history. Which, of course, being a figurative oil painter, I think you have to have some kind of dialogue with art history going. Um, you you can't not, almost. But I, I like the way that it uh, pushes that up, particularly in a city like Venice, where you have all these incredible gold mosaics. And just also the light has a very golden quality. So it all came together very, very nicely. Does that answer the question? I don't know. Uh, beautifully well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I find them fascinating. I... I appreciate what you're saying as well about photography uh, in, in particular, you know, as part of your process, you, you prefer working from life and direct observation. For me, I've struggled with this. I, I, whilst I appreciate it, I have personally struggled with it because I always found photography to just be a matter of convenience, a lot easier for me to, to work with photographic images because of the nature of the work was always so big, these big grand landscapes. Uh, it was difficult to paint on plein air with something that's two and a half meters across. So one of the things that I, I, I really love doing recently is going outside painting on plein air. And that has then kind of filtered in and informed some of the bigger studio works. But I appreciate what you're saying because there is there is a certain flatness to it. There's a certain dimension that's missing when you're seeing something for yourself in the flesh, you get all of the nuances, you get all those subtle shifts of tone and color. But also I think maybe it's just the difference in the way our eyes see compared to the way the camera sees. The camera is almost a deletion machine. It, it, it cuts too much out. And this is the thing I struggle with in the studio. So I, I appreciate that, um, you know, you, uh, 
you have that as a big part of your process. I think it shows. Absolutely. Your work is exquisite. Thank you so much. Um, the yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of magnificent work done based on photographs. I mean, Chuck Close comes to mind first and foremost, but lots of other people like yourself and Freeman too. There's nothing wrong with painting from photos. It's just for me, there is also an element of, I think, my work being process-based as much as it is result-based. Like, it's very much about the doing. And this thing of presence, you know, presence is a very ephemeral term, but it's a very, very important term. And I think it's very um, relevant, particularly to figurative art, because you, your presence within a space, within a landscape, within a room, within a conversation with someone else has a particular echo and the other person's or the landscape's or the subject's presence also has an echo. And it's something that you can do in photography. I do, I mean, right now I'm actually working as a photographer here. I've totally moonlighted as a photographer and been paid wow. for it, you know, on many occasions. I'm, I love photography. I do a mm. lot of it. But for me, it's like, if I take that photo, that's the piece. It's done. Why would I want to paint that on top of it? It's like, that's, uh, 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 that's the thing um, that I've made there. And I remember David Hockney saying something. Can I, can I uh, digress a little bit? Perfect. He, yeah, I, that's what the podcast is all about. Ah, so, okay. Hockney is someone whose thoughts I find incredibly inspiring. Um, I love much of his work, not all of his work. But the way that he thinks and talks about painting is, like, amazing. And there was an interview in a magazine called Paradis, possibly 10 years ago, a uh, long, big piece, uh, where he talked about going into the countryside in Yorkshire to paint the hawthorn, these big, bulbous uh blossoms on the bushes by the side and he was there with his van and full of paintings and he was setting up and he was painting these luscious horsehorn blossoms and he was so happy that he timed it right and he was taking lots of photos as well and then he got back to the studio that night and he was comparing the images that he'd taken on his camera with the stuff that he painted and in his uh photographs the blossoms were these little piddly dots of pink and in his paintings, there were these luscious, huge blobs of color. And he went, ha, huh, okay, this is not something that I embellished on purpose. This is what I was seeing because I was loving the Hawthorn. I was excited about the blossoms. I was giving them more attention. Therefore, psychologically, and one could say possibly physically because there's no way of knowing because it's so subjective, that's what he was seeing. He was reproducing what he was seeing which was different to what the camera was seeing. So like you said, there's a reductivity in what the camera takes in, not only in the geometric nature of what it's recording, but also in the way that our vision not only isn't rectangular, you know, we have that vague fuzz out of color and uh, whatever in our peripheral vision, but also I think the way that we look at something or someone is so affected by the way that we feel about it. So, you know, if you look at your wife or someone that you love, you know, there's a beauty to that. That's 
beyond the visual, but it is beauty nonetheless. And it's a physical thing that you see. And if you're a good painter, you can try and capture that and the camera can't. And that's why I find working from life super, super exciting because you're chasing that edge of real subjective perception. Absolutely. I appreciate that so much. The criticism that gets thrown my way um, quite a lot and and just picking up on something that you, you said a bit earlier is, you know, if you can take a photograph of that, why not just leave it to the camera to do that job? What are you doing painting it? And this is something that people say when they when they look at my work, they're like, Andrew, why don't you just take a photograph? But if they could just spend some time in the studio, I, and I hate to get defensive here in the podcast, but I mean, if they could just spend some time in the studio and say, I've got like images, hundreds and hundreds of images to just try and recapture that moment that I had in the field, like David Hockney with his Hawthorne. It, it's, it's about just, and, and again, I like what you said about the wormhole that opens up, that connects you to that past experience, that as soon as you, you do that, it's like, oh yeah, I remember okay, I'm back here now. And then it allows you to channel that stuff through you. It really makes you wonder, where is the scene happening? Is seeing a phenomenon? Is it just based in the eyes? Or are you seeing up here and feeling with your heart at the same time? You know, it's, it, it, who knows? Um, I think that just makes art all the more fascinating. Mm. Yes. And I would, I mean, to the people who criticize you for painting the photographs, I would say, I mean, that's the whole point. This is the process. It's a, it's a, 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 a re-presencing of yourself into that way. And I think the way that you use paint to convey also a transcendental, if one can use that word, uh, experience of being I like there. I that word. I would, I would wonder, <laughs> have, you, have you, so this is my question. Your work tends to be, I guess, from photos that you've taken. Have you ever had someone like send you a picture of here, this is my farm in Norway where you've never been and you've done a painting of that photograph having never been in the place? And if so, how is that different for you, that experience? Never do that. I've never done that. That's my policy. I had a a gentleman, a a quite wealthy Australian businessman, get in touch with me last year. And he said, um, I want a painting of Karajini National Park from this vantage point. It means a lot to me, my family, and I want to do something here that captures the park. And I said, okay, one, I haven't been to Karajini National Park in Western Australia since 2005. So we're going back a long way now. And, uh, and, and two, I don't have that reference material in my files. I'm going to need to get it. And so... We ended up talking back and forth, but the end result of what happened is, is we ended up agreeing, you know what? I have to meet you at Karajini National Park next month. We booked t- tickets. We flew over there. And the way that I got those images is I went back with my technology. I had a drone. I took it out at the right vantage point. I had to get all my permits and everything to just fly the drone off the lookout. But when I took the drone photographs and HD video back into the studio, I then spliced it all together and then completely redesigned it, drawing it out by hand and then doing digital drawings as well using Photoshop without importing photography, but drawing it from scratch to reprocess through my brain, through feeling this thing along. And then it ended up being the piece that some people would be able to see right now. I'm currently working on it in the studio. and it's a massive painting, but with with a project as big as that, you you really have to 
pull out all the stops and really go all out. I, I, I get I get a lot of requests. I get a lot of people sending me photographs of the one that really gets me is when they send me photographs of someone that's deceased and they want me to paint a picture. Um, that's difficult. That's not something that I've done or I don't think I can do unless I knew that person or had a personal connection with them. Otherwise, I think it's just a facsimile of the uh, of, of, of a photograph. It's not it's not an, an authentic expression. I think there's something missing in the painting of it. Maybe I'm too woo-woo in that respect, but I, I really feel like it needs to go a little bit further. Oh, it sounds like we have very much a similar feeling and for similar approach that I, funnily enough, I, I have a commission to, um, well, okay, to paint a painting of David Bowie for a friend of mine, uh, which is challenging, but it so happens that this is someone that I did know and I'm doing it from a photograph that was not never published and that is kind of a, a separate thing. But still, man, I've had that big go for years and I haven't managed to get anywhere with it because it just feels so difficult doing it without the um, collaboration of the sitter and uh, from, the, from the distance. Um, I mean... This is something to talk about is, is the whole relationship, I think, of uh, mortality and art is incredibly important, particularly with portraiture, but also with anything you make, really. And I've had it on a number of occasions where um, there have been occasions when there were people who I had a kind of tentative date for a portrait sitting with and um, they surprisingly left the building permanently and I didn't get around to have that sitting and man that hurts so badly that's just the worst I mean selfishly <laughs> I will say of course there's the whole pain of grief that comes along with it but also simply um, yeah it's it's a terrible terrible thing and likewise there are other friends and, and, and uh, people who I really admire who I have managed to have that uh, sitting with, even if the results, whether the results good or bad is kind of neither here nor there. Of course, it's great if it's a good painting or drawing as well. But the fact that that moment of creating together did happen and now that they're gone, I can go back to that experience and I'll have the tr record of it, the trace of it, the trace of our presence together is incredibly precious. And it's like, you know, I've, I've, um, I've got that. Yeah. It's, it is, it's a, it's priceless to be able to do that. I, I can totally relate to that. Um, there was maybe about three and a half years ago, I painted my wife's grandparents. Um, I painted her grandfather first. Um, and I, I had the moment, you know, I knew the man and I, I had the moment where I just asked him one day, could I paint his portrait? So the whole time he kind of, since taking the photograph, he had in his head, Andrew's going to be producing this portrait. I can't wait to see this portrait. And, you know, the family would talk about it now and again. And in the meantime, before I had had a chance to finish the painting, he had died and never got to see it. And so now his, his wife, now widowed, um, I was doing a double portrait, you know, two pictures that fit together like a, like a diptych. And 
she got a chance to see her painting next to his. And that was one of the most emotional unveilings I've ever come across. And I, I, I do, I, there's a lot of people out there that say, you know, no regrets. I, I, I'm, to me, that's BS. I have regrets. That's one thing I regret is, is not getting onto it fast enough. So he had a chance to see the painting. Um, I, I hope it doesn't sound too, you know, braggartly to say it. I, I think it would have made a difference to him. I think it would have made it because seeing the impact that it had on, on his wife or Oma as, as the family calls her, which is, you know, Dutch for grandmother. Um, I think, uh, I think if he had had a, a similar, he would have had a similar reaction to what she had, which was just pure emotion. Um, and yeah, I'll never forget that. So now when I, when I ask to paint somebody's portrait, I try to jump on it as quickly as possible because I'm drawn to subjects that, you know, I, I'm drawn to elderly people. My personal preference for who I really would love to paint are, are predominantly people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s because they just have so much life plastered all over their face. They just, you can tell, you can see the story without hearing it. But Bowie should be interesting. If you look, but it's you know, hard. It's hard having a face that's so recognizable and so um. But on that, so isn't he part of all of our past? I mean, I'm a big Bowie fan. The Labyrinth was my favorite movie of all time growing up, and so you kind of feel because he's part of popular culture and he's very much a part of our consciousness that that you do know him in a way, and so you're going to bring something special to it. And also, you you have you have the personal connection. I always am happy to see that painting standing in the corner. It's quite a big one, and I'm like, okay, that's you know, that I, and I know that the moment's going to come. I've done three sessions on it, and I know that the moment's going to come when I'm just going to whack it out, and it's going to be what it should be. Uh, but when that moment is, I don't know, and it's definitely something where I feel I, I can't really push that river. I have to wait for that to be the the, the, the proper alignment of things. And very luckily, my friend who's commissioned the piece is uh, an extremely patient man and and uh, up for waiting as long as it takes. Brilliant. There's a um, there's a phenomenon called neuronal adequacy where you there's a certain point where the potential energy builds up in your brain and the right neurons fire in the right pathways at the right time. And it's like, oh, I suddenly have to paint it now. I love that. What's the term? Neuronal adequacy. Ah, oh, yes. Well, I know exactly how that feels, but I've never known that it had a name for it. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember that. <laughs> well, I... I I get this question now and again, Sandro. It it uh, it drives me nuts, but I'm going to throw it your way. In regards to your work, you know, when we're talking about art, art is is visual communication. You are communicating a message through your your paintings, and you know, if you're successful in communicating this message, you don't really need to explain your work. But that said, this is an audio show as well as a video put out on YouTube, so we get a chance to talk about it. I'm curious, what does what do these paintings of these eyes mean to you? What is the theme that you're exploring there? Well, there's actually a larger question about why make art in the first place. And I do have a story I want to tell about that. But as far as the eyes themselves go, I think that 
when we look at a portrait, usually the first thing that we're drawn to is the eyes. When we look at a person, usually the first thing that we kind of focus on, the way that we make connection is the eyes. They're both receptors of the outside world and also transmitters of our presence. So I think that, um, you know, we broadcast ourselves through our eyes. If you look into someone's eyes, you can pretty quickly tell what sort of state they're in, what sort of person they are. And I think it's such a precious and delightful thing to spend a couple of hours looking into someone's eyes. So again, selfishly, uh, I, I enjoy the process very much. And as far as the result goes, that's a room full of portraits. They just happen to only be this peekaboo one portrait of one eye of the person. So it's sort of like a greatest hits mixtape. I'm cutting out all the other tracks of the face that we love too, but this is like the banger on every face, just the eye. That's, uh, that's there standing on its own. And one thing that's particularly delicious about the eyes, I think, is the fact that in the iris, on not all of them, but quite a lot of them, you have a little reflection. Sometimes there's a little self-portrait within the pupil, within the eye. If you really go in there and you can see the room that I was in, uh, the space that I was in, I travel a lot. And so I'm having to work in all kinds of places. And the great thing about the eyes is they're painted on wood, so I can stack them back to front and I can transport as many as a dozen of them I just can't paint on the frontmost panel and just pack them together. They're completely safe. They can try. I can store wet oil paintings, carry them around the world with me. I've painted them in, you know, a palazzo in Venice, in a park in London, in, you know, on Waikiki Island in New Zealand, in the Maldives on a beach, in hotels in New York. And, and you can always see a little bit of the space that I was in um, reflected in the iris. And, Along with that and the conversation that you that I've had with the sitter, my fantasy is, or at least this is the reality for me, my fantasy is that this is also the same for the viewers, that you can really dive into that atmosphere. I think atmosphere is the key thing in art. And I think every one of those eyes has a slightly different atmosphere. And when you're in the room with them, I don't think it happens in the same way when you look at them as reproductions or online. I mean, then they're still good, but... I really felt like in the room you could kind of dive into each atmosphere as you look at them. That was my favorite thing about that show. Like the opening was super, super epic and it was really amazing, but at the same time it was totally overwhelming and kind of, you know, a very sweaty and uh, a blurry affair that I can't quite recall properly. And then the next day I went back with um, my mum, her partner, my brother, his wife, and my partner, and just sort of stood in the back of the big room as the general ticket buying public came through and had no idea, you know, who I was or what I had to do and just listen to people, to see them look at stuff, to see them appreciate it. That was uh, incredibly gratifying and, and really, really wonderful. And um, to wit, why do we do it in the first place? I've spent... Of, of many times you know we all are enthusiastic people you definitely are i certainly am too but you do have the dark nights of the soul when you just go oh my god why the hell am i putting myself through this and 
how dare I ask for thousands of dollars for <laughs> something that I've enjoyed making so much myself? You know, that's the other difficult one. And um, I had this absolutely key experience when now seven years ago, my mother had terrible cancer and she was in the general hospital in Auckland. I don't know if you've ever been there but it's a big concrete block. There's basically an inner courtyard with a glass roof. That's the only day like you get all the windows go in. So you can't look out. There's nothing to see. You're in these rooms. All the nurses, everyone was really fantastic and great, but man, death was in the room and it was completely touch and go for her. She was um, very, very ill. And I flew over and um, had two weeks in New Zealand and basically sat by her bedside every day, um, trying to help her recover. Of course, you can do nothing in those moments, but just sort of lending my presence. Um, and a few times a day, I would walk down the corridor to these three lithographs, which friends of the Auckland Museum had um, kindly donated to the hospital. And they were good pieces but nothing I would ordinarily write home about there was a still life with some fish there was a scene of boats on a beach and there was a Auckland skyline and they were so important I'm so sorry it's making me emotional just thinking about it but man I fucking I'm gonna say it held on to those things they gave me an anchor and they gave me some kind of sense of um, meaning beyond the um, absolute mix of entropy and bureaucracy and just dealing with the mortal facts of life. And up until that point, I really had doubted the value of art not in the kind of, you know, culturally, of course, we need art because it tells stuff, but the sort of day-to-day, this is your bread and butter, this is what feeds you. Like, really? I didn't quite get it, and that made me get it. It was absolutely essential. It was not a luxury at all. It was life-preserving. It was life-giving. And I thought, um, you know, if some pretty pictures on a wall can do that, for me and I would hazard a guess that I'm really not the only person who those uh, pictures meant something to as well um, if what I make can provide anything approaching that kind of um, meaningfulness to someone else then that's great and in the meantime I've enjoyed making them definitely and if I'm lucky, which I am very lucky, I'll also make some money doing it. But that's kind of the, the, the triumvirate of why to do it, to, to, to be able to share some element of oneself. And no, not, not of oneself, that's wrong. It's, it's putting something into the world that can be meaningful for someone. It doesn't even have to be meaningful for me or you, but it can be meaningful for someone. That's what it is. And um, enjoying the making, sure. I like to enjoy what I'm doing. And then 
somewhere down the line also making a living because we need to keep painting and in order to keep painting we need to be paid for what we do absolutely mic drop <laughs> i totally relate to to what you're saying sandro um you know, you do have these experiences for those of us who are fortunate enough to have been able to go to an art museum and maybe have a, a, an experience with a work of art that has moved us. There's been a few paintings in, in my time. And, and for me, it's more so it's paintings. It's two-dimensional images than sculpture. Um, but there have been two that, that I, I will never forget the first time that I've, I saw them. And one of them in particular, I had to keep going back to see. And I, I grew up in Perth in Western Australia. And so I would go to the art gallery of Western Australia whenever they'd have a major international exhibit. And there was this one show that came through in 2005 called St. Petersburg 1900. And they had some original paintings by the Russian masters, 19th century painters. And um, one guy by the name of Ivan Ivanovich Shishkin. And he had painted Oh, this I know Shishkin. Yeah, he had painted this forest scene and there's snow falling on these fallen logs in the foreground, you know, caked in snow. And there were these pine trees kind of going back into the distance. And it was just, it was just white punctuated by little bits of bark of the trees here and there. And the sun was coming through those trees in such a way, and it was glinting off the snow in the foreground. For me, it was almost a, a spiritual experience looking at that. But for me, what it did in that moment was it was just like a hand on the shoulder. It was like a wake-up call saying, you can do this. Not only can you do this, you must do this. This is where the meaning is. This is your purpose. Now, when I say can do this, I don't mean in it from a technical standpoint because I don't I hope one day to be able to reach Shishkin's level with painting because that man was a master. He was a genius. You get up close to one of these original works and it is mind-blowing what he was able to do with paint. The other artist, though, uh, was a guy by the name of Hans Heysen. He had a painting called Droving into the Light, which was one of these Australian scenes where the, the sun is going down on this dusty trail and there's a stockman with his flock and a border collie kind of bringing up the, the sheep from, from behind, pushing it down the road. And the way the sun is kind of shining off the bark of these old river red gums, he captured the sadness, the, the desolation of the Australian landscape, but there was just a beautiful moment there that he just captured. And again, it's a spiritual experience. For for somebody wielding a brush like that to be able to transport you into a moment, there's there's real meaning there. There's a magic there. And and I keep coming back to these things, trying to trying to touch on that with my own work, but I, 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 I'm with you. I think that this is something that we absolutely need in in today's society and through that and and not in an arrogant way but i think through that we must learn to value ourselves and actually place some sort of value on our work so that we're able to continue to explore these themes and share it with people which brings me i, I want to go off on a little bit of a tangent here because we were chatting just over over whatsapp before we started the call and you gave me a little bit of homework 
And in this homework, you're like, hey, have you seen these videos? Have you seen these? Yeah, you better be. Have you seen these movies? Because uh, these movies might be really interesting to, to kind of touch on. So I watched this one called The Price of Everything and talking about um, art and value. And in, in this documentary, there was such an astronomical value placed on some of this stuff that, dude, I just can't get into it. I just, I'm trying. Maybe I'm a, maybe I'm an ignoramus. Maybe I just, I don't get it. Maybe I'm not smart enough, but I was looking at, you paid how many millions for what? So whilst I'm for placing a value on your work to be able to sustain your production, this is another world. Let's talk a little bit about that because what what do you get out of that that documentary? This is possibly difficult to go into because not everybody listening to this will have seen the film, but I do highly recommend it. And um, the truly ludicrous amount of money that some people pay for master paintings or even contemporary paintings is neither here nor there. I mean, that is a gamble, I would say. I think that there's a sort of value probably, uh, you know, it's a sliding scale, but somewhere probably between 10 and $30,000. That's the most anyone will pay for something because it's pretty. Once you pay more than that, and many, many people do, the only real reason why you pay that much is because you're making a assertion that you think it's going to be part of history. And that is where curators, galleries, museums, institutions come in because they are arbiting what is going to be considered history and you know i think this is one of the reasons why it's so important to look at the old masters to read up about art history to see the way that things have developed through the ages to see the way that things have developed in the 20th century to see the way that things have developed in the past 20 years i there's that moment in the the uh, relatively early in the documentary i forget what it is but they're walking around freeze or something and someone says artists shouldn't be at art fairs you know this is really not their territory i love going to art fairs i think it's hilarious i always go to the opening of freeze and i always go to the opening of the venice biennale which are two very different things because freeze is ultimately a supermarket for extremely wealthy people whereas um the venice biennale at least on the surface is only to show like nothing's for sale there it's just to show people so that's why i particularly love venice also because i love the place but i find it amazing to walk around especially like freeze opening night and all the fur and the diamonds and the plastic surgery but everyone's there for art you know they could be going to buy cars or going to god knows what else but at the end of the day that's people's way of being enthusiastic about art and i i value that and i appreciate that genuinely like me appreciating the three uh prints in the auckland museum i think that in its own way the money isn't what it's about you know the money is a value that we put onto it that um isn't yeah almost random thing and the key figure in the documentary, The Price of Everything, is this guy called Larry Poons. 
Um, and he is one of the kind of Stella, Chuck Close, sort of super huge New York figures from the 70s who kind of dropped out. And you see him in his studios painting these beautiful, huge rolls of messy, big, colourful paintings. And he's sort of almost 80 and he chuckles about the fact that everyone thinks he's died. And he's so happy and he's just doing it. He's just making art. And uh, I don't know if you finished the film, but in the end, you know, you kind of go to his opening and, and things, more things happen. But I just keep my focus on Larry. And I think it's it's so wonderful to see the way that he's got this twinkle and this like, he's got a life, you know, he's really got a life. He's doing what he loves. He loves his motorbikes. He's got his wife. He's like out in somewhere in the countryside. I think it's so um, wonderful to see that. And the thing is though, that in a way that film needs to be seen in concert with the other two films, uh, Exit Through the Gift Shop and Anvil, This is Anvil which are two further explorations of what it means to be creative. Um, I don't know if we want to get into that. Maybe that's a whole different conversation. Oh, I'm happy to go down that rabbit hole. But, you know, seeing as you mentioned Larry Poons, there's a quote that, um, that he said in the movie, uh, in, in the documentary, that, you know, I've been thinking about this and, and I don't know how I feel about it, to be completely honest. But he said, uh, there are no rules about what is going to be good and what is going to be bad. Art doesn't give a shit. It never has. And to me... This is it's we're getting into territory when it comes to modern art. And I've been very critical of modern art, contemporary art. And again, when you're looking at it from a historical standpoint, I've always had an enormous difficulty about thinking about where I fit, um, especially early on, because I wanted to see some sort of trajectory to my career that I was going somewhere and I was going to matter. It took me a lot of time to just be able to put that out of my mind and go, you know what? It ain't about fitting in. It's not about trying to predict or preempt what the marketplace wants because there is no way to predict that. There is no way to decide which squiggle on canvas is going to be the next hot thing. The only thing you can do is be absolutely authentic and be totally honest with yourself about what it is you want to create. I tried playing the game for a very brief moment straight out of university. My art school days, I felt, did a lot of damage on a personal level. But maybe it's through that struggle that I found my own voice and just went, you know what? Screw this. I want to paint pretty pictures. I'm highly conceptual. Guess what my concept is? No concept. I have a concept of no concept. I don't want my viewer to think at all. And I'm okay with that. And so this is something that I felt you know, as soon as I decided that for myself, it meant that I would never be part of that clique. I'd never be part of the establishment. I'd never be part of the art world. I would have to do my own thing. As so many other people, I mean, there's a there's a really successful, highly lucrative art market that exists outside of the contemporary art world. There are people out there with money who want to buy pretty things. And, and fortunately, those people keep someone like me employed. But you know, I, I'm not too sure where, where I want to go from there, Sandra, but I, 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 in talking to Freeman about this quite a lot as well, I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning this, but, um, you know, we were talking about what it means to be an artist and, and is it something that's worthwhile pursuit trying to be part of some sort of establishment or being part of, of history and, and doesn't matter? Well, first of all, 
semantically speaking, I would say you are a contemporary artist simply by the fact that you're making art now. You may not be a conceptual artist, but I think all art has at some point been contemporary. And what's contemporary right now happens to be oftentimes um, dominated by something that is linked very strongly to academia. And I think academia has a uh, deep investment in concept being there before work. Now, I think that's fine. And a lot of people do that and have that. And that's great for people who work that way. However, I'm also a huge believer in concept after work. You make something and then the concept reveals itself. Like I can talk until the fields go green about why my eyes are a conceptual piece of art and it's a question of context and framing and contextualizing the setting and the material and all of that or i could simply say they're pretty pictures and i think that academia so meaning a kind of academic school of thought exists based on the idea that the concept comes first. And I think, and I'm sure a lot of people would, a lot of people who are in the permanent collections of the great museums of this world would agree that a lot of times you do something because it feels right and because it looks good and that's the only reason. And then sooner or later, there may be a story attached to it. But really, at the end of the day, it was just what came out of you and that's fine. And I think a lot of people do appreciate that. And there are painters, you know, people, I don't know if you know who I mean by Marilyn Minter or Chuck mm -hmm. Close or yeah. um, Marlene McCarthy or Jenny Savile, you know, it's these are people who are in completely in and they're figurative painters. They're good figurative painters. And that's totally fine. It's totally fine to be a figurative painter. That doesn't have to be you can't be in. You know, I think to think that in some way, because we're making pictures that look like something, we're second class citizens is a complete red herring. And you just have to stop thinking that. <laughs> well, fair enough. I guess what I'm saying is more kind of reference to um, trying to, and again, there's something else that I've been wrestling with over the years is this difference between originality and authenticity. So authentically, when I, when I look at Hans Heysen, Ivan Ivanovich Shishkin, Thomas Moran, or Albert Bierstadt, I look at these artists and I'm like, I want to paint like those guys. But, you know, in terms of the establishment academia, the, there's this idea that, well, that's already been done. Those things have already been said. And now it's time to say something new. And so I, I kind of wrestle with that idea of, okay, do I be original or do I be authentic? Um, and to me, it's just much more important now at this stage of my life to just be, to be me doing what I do. Now, that's not to say, that's not to say that people, you know, taking part in the, the art world is, they're not being authentic. I, for instance, like right now with you, when I look at your work, I, I see someone that is genuinely exploring an idea because I want to get to the root of the thing that inspires them. You know, that's what I see in your work, Sandra. Like it's it's beautiful stuff. And and I'm not just saying that, but I, I can see that really fitting in here with, with this whole 
um, I'm not too sure where I want to go from there, but like I, I can see it fitting in um, very much to to a, in a modern context, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and you know, everybody in one way or another has that. You know, there's there's friends of mine who are making video art who are like, oh man, I wish I was doing paintings because video art's so difficult to sell and to get shown, and people don't give it the time. They walk into the room where my work's showing, and they walk straight out again because they can't take it in a second. You know you'll always find someone who's more successful and someone who's less successful than you. That's part of the course with anything you do in life. Mm. Um, Even if you're the most successful and the best, that ain't going to last. You're going to sooner or later be superseded. So Mm. I think, um, yeah, looking too far up or down the ladder and definitely jealousy is probably a waste of time. I think jealousy I is agree. a real waste of time. And anyone who's making art, and if that art is, you know, a piece of thread tied around an empty toilet paper roll and they're selling it for three million bucks, good on them. Do it. Great. I wish them all the best. I have absolutely no problem with that. And I personally have encountered many deeply moving and 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 great experiences with stuff that was more or less purely conceptual in nature. Like I said, I'm kind of an enthusiast. I, I love going to museums, showing anything. And I think there's a huge conversation to be had about taste, you know? Yeah. Your yeah. taste is for shishkins and pretty pictures, and your taste is relatively, you know, circumscribed for that. Whereas other people's tastes completely exclude that and is only for monochrome pieces of metal uh, stacked in asymmetrical formations. And then there are those people who just have extremely wide tastes and who love opera and heavy metal and atonal micro music and techno and all of it and who just want it all. And that's fine. I think of course, um, as long as you can connect to an audience and you are connecting to your audience, then, um, and audience is a silly term in a way but you know what i mean you can connect to people who like yeah. what you're doing it's good and if um the person who is doing something completely oblique and uh, like i mean for example just to, to, to tell you about one of the great experiences that i've had there's this sh- annual show in um venice called glass stress uh, where because Venice has this huge tradition of glass making, so they get people who usually don't work in glass to work in glass, and they have a show together for it. And this great uh, American artist called Sarah Say did a piece which was simply shards of green glass, looked like broken bottles and raw concrete, and she'd made this frieze that ran all the way around the second floor of this amazing palazzo with shards of green glass stuck into it like a you know a security thing where people couldn't climb in and it was all around the inside the outside of the building and it had such a visceral response and it was so witty and it was so amazing and it was completely unpretty that wasn't the point for it Mm. but it moved me deeply you know okay other people might go why the hell have you you know messed up the facade of that palazzo 
that's fine. Each to their own. Live and let live. I I agree with that. I agree with that, Sandra, very much. Hey, before we move on, move on from from this subject, because I I want to dive deep more into your story and, and your yes. origins. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, go on. But you I first, also, like Please. because because you started it. I think the question <laughs> of authenticity versus originality yeah. is yeah. tremendously important, yes. and I do think that there is a real value to originality. I do think mm-hmm. that we must at least try to find our own corner of the garden to pee on. You know, I think <laughs> I like that, that. there's. Yeah. Um, it's because you know you're stepping on someone else's turf in a way i mean shishkin's not going to mind he's not around anymore but i would argue that there are unbelievably nuanced differences to Mm -hmm. um that whole question and Mm -hmm. i would also say that you have developed a style of your own simply through very authentically acting and probably you know you're never going to be shishkin because you're not because i'm not so you know so in a way okay that's the originality taken care of nonetheless i think you need to build up a body of work that is somehow close to your own and then that'll be original in its first place but the the, um, the banksy documentary we should have a follow-up because watch exit okay. the gift shop it's all yeah. about that andrew here please excuse this brief interruption i just wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about this podcast's sponsors now as you know i'm obsessed with painting And it actually is vitally important that I use the highest quality products I possibly can. Now, I've found some brushes that are by far the best brushes on the market, hands down. And they're made by Rosemary & Co. Now, I've teamed up with Rosemary & Co. And we've put together some sets that you can get now on their website at www.rosemaryandco.com. There's a landscape set a portrait set, and even an on-plein-air set. And these are by far my favorite brushes to use. I've also had a hand in designing a special brush, the Tisch Dagger brush, which I just love using for my portraits and my landscapes. It gives me an extra degree of control and versatility with the marks that I can achieve with this special brush. Now, Rosemary & Co. brushes are all I use in the studio, and they are my favorite brushes. Again, hands down, nothing else I've tried compares to them, not even close. So make sure you check them out by going to www.rosemaryandco.com and search my name, Tischler, and you'll find those sets. Now, while we're talking about high-quality painting materials, it is absolutely critical that I'm using the best quality oil paint I can get my hands on. That's why it's such a pleasure to have teamed up with Blue Ridge Oil Paints. Now, Eric Silver, the man behind Blue Ridge, is an absolute genius when it comes to making these colors, and I really love what he's been able to do. We've now put together some sets for landscape, portrait, or even painting on plein air. And you can find these on the website www.blueridgeoilpaint.com. Simply click that drop-down menu that says sets, and you'll find those collections of colors that we've put together for you. This is now by far my favorite 
paint to use and I just love it. I use it for my commission projects, for my tutorials on YouTube now, and I'm just loving what I can achieve with this color from the workability and just how smooth and consistent the color is, but also just how pungent those colors are and how strikingly saturated that pigment is. I really love what's in each and every one of these tubes of color. So make sure you check them out. Go to www.blueridgeoilpaint.com and click on sets and you'll find those sets of oils that we've put together. Now, a quick note on the sponsors that I work with for both my YouTube videos and for this podcast. I'm only going to work with sponsors who create a product that I actually use professionally. It has to be something that's good for me, good for my art career, and something that's good for you as well. I'd hate to lead you astray, and that's why it's so important to me to team up with such reputable companies who create products that I actually use. And I thank you very much for checking out the sponsors. Every little bit counts, and it helps me continue to provide this free content for you. Now, thank you so much for allowing me to interrupt. Let's jump right back into the podcast with Sandro Kopp. In speaking about this idea of of originality versus authenticity, and and I'll we'll just we'll tie that one up again because I want to do a deeper dive into you, not make this about me, but I, I have really enjoyed this back and forth because look, it's it's your fault, man. You got me thinking. You said, "Hey, watch these documentaries," and and it just immediately transported me back to my university days where I really struggled with this. When I think about my art heroes from the past, you know, Shishkin, Hans Heisen, Arthur Street, and a Moran or a Bierstadt, these, these big names in landscape paintings, they were fitting into a tradition, which was a, a set of, of ideas and techniques, and, and it was appropriate for the culture at that time. I feel that these artists weren't thinking about, I, maybe I'm making an assumption here, but I, I I assume that they weren't thinking about how they fit in to a particular context. What they were doing was having a, a way of interfacing with the natural world. And, and for them, for back then, it was all about God. This was a spiritual experience that they were having with creation itself. And there, it doesn't seem to enter into the dialogue from, from a historical standpoint, this idea of, I am going to go out and do something new. It's the, the, the onus, it's on the artist to go, I need to, to the best of my ability, capture the light shining off a mountain, however that turns out. But that is my quest as an artist. It doesn't, and for me, that's kind of where my my primary concern today behind my art, I, I've literally had to put it out of my mind, if if that makes sense. Finding the corner of the garden that is just mine to pee on. Uh, there's pee everywhere. Mm. I don't think I can find a spot. Um, and that's okay. I'm yes. happy. Pee, I'm happy peeing on someone else's pee. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> this went downhill very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I. I have a certain instinctive revulsion towards doing something that I feel like has been done too much. It's like, you know, that feeling uh, when you're standing in front of, I don't know, a famous artwork in a museum and you're taking a picture of it and you're just going, oh God, I'm like the 150,000th person to take that photograph. It's a little bit that same sense. 
when you're making something. And the place where I feel that the most is nudes. Now, I love nudes. I had uh, my first life drawing experience was when I was 16 or 17. Um, friend of a friend was relatively highly pregnant. And my mate was like, come over. You're such a great painter. Like, she's so beautiful. You've got to, you've got to draw her. I, I brought some pastels and I was sitting down and I had this beautiful pregnant woman naked in front of me and I was drawing her and I just had this complete explosion in the back of my head and it was like this is actually what I'm supposed to be doing in my life yeah this is really the best Mm. and I remember drawing and drawing and drawing and after a while I thought something missing what's missing and i went (gasps) and i realized i'd forgotten to breathe i was just so concentrated that i i i'd forgotten to breathe and i was in the moment so much since then i've been trying to get my nude i want to do something with the naked figure that really feels relevant i've been working on nudes ever since then Mm. it's absolutely key and i've shown Mm. it extremely rarely i love life drawing Mm. but my dilemma is that because people have been drawing and painting naked people for several thousand years and because i to my own bloody problem want to work from life there are only so many positions that you can put a naked body in that someone can hold for the sufficient amount of time to draw or paint them. So that already reduces your range of originality. When you're doing a portrait, there's kind of, it's always new. I think a portrait is always going to tell a new story if it's well painted and if it's authentically painted, then it's always there. With a nude, because there's a kind of, on the one hand step of remove, you're literally further away from the person, but also there's a kind of, animalistic universality to nakedness which is one of the reasons why we love them so much i mean i remember once i was doing a um live painting event in germany freeman was part of that as well actually it was the symposium for figurative kunst and um we were painting these uh nudes with a life model in a kind of exhibition audience environment and this kid walked up to me maybe seven or eight and was like why are they naked and i totally didn't have a good answer for him i was just like uh, I, I don't know why do you like looking at a sunset it's beautiful like it's 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 the it's the thing that you do in art is draw naked people and still to a degree that's the best reason i can come up with it but i am not content doing simply another version of some person lying on their side with their arm on their red cage just so and it's I, I i mean i do still do it and i enjoy doing it but i'm not happy to let that out i wanna i'm digging at it i'm digging at it i'm digging at it. i've been digging at it for 20 years and i'm gonna keep digging at it and i think maybe in another 20 i'm gonna get there and i'm gonna get my own way of doing it i think there are people who are showing the way i mean lucian Floyd, of course is a huge hero jenny savile's a huge hero and the way that you can treat the um, very straightforward, representatively painted naked body and still really have it be your own unique thing. Um, 
but I have not yet been able to come up with it. I'm, I'm really trying, well, and I'm going to do more. I, I think, uh, dare I say, I, th I think you're, I think you're close, um, because when I look at your work, um, there's some things that I see there. You know, you, you strike me as a guy that, that again, you're, you're digging deep into these subjects that inspire you, and you're trying to find that way that is, is a unique expression. And, and I, it to me, it's, it's almost like the search the 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 surfer searching for that perfect wave you know they travel to to mm. no end to try and find this thing that's a fleeting moment you only know it when you're on it you know and yes with you i i look at some of these works and the thing one of the one of the forms that, that your figurative work has taken that i found really interesting fascinating actually is the way you use technology as, as a vehicle for for creating this. So you're doing paintings with using Skype, having somebody else on a on a screen on an, in another part of the world, and you're actually working from life, but through this technological medium. I, I find that extraordinary. And I I'm I've never heard of anybody doing that before. You might be the first. Mm. That was it was a very a slash is because I do still do it a very uh, fertile field to plow. It was it was really great. I started doing that in two thousand eight or nine, I guess, um, which is when Skype and digital communication were really still relatively fresh. In those days, far more prevalent pixelation and distortion and color and form that you got on Skype was this sort of shorthand to uh, instantaneous um, impressionism almost. Like you got these amazing blues and purples popping and paying attention to that and enjoying that was really part of the, um, the process. And also talking again about originality, people love the story. The combination of the very, very old fashioned oil painting and the very, very new Skype communication. I had several very successful shows um, of that work because it was a, a, a very easily graspable thing that felt relevant to our time. Now, I still do it. I still do quite a lot of Skype nudes, actually, and also Skype portraits, but I do it a lot less simply because I realized I spend my life looking at my phone, looking at my computer, like screens are sufficiently represented in my life. I don't want my painting to have that as well. Therefore, I phased it out and I now try and go to the person and sit in a room with them to have that. But it is still a very enjoyable and um, useful uh, thing to do. And the other thing is it sort of become so quotidian, you know? Everyone's got FaceTime in their pocket. It's not that new, oh, wow, look, we can see each other and you're in New Zealand and I'm in South America, wow. Like, it's just- It's amazing though, isn't it? It, it's, it is yeah. super amazing yeah. and God bless it. And I mean, I love yeah. Skype. And um, so I, I'm super into it, but hmm. uh, it's just lost a little bit of its freshness. And I felt sure. like in my show, Feedback Loop in New York, I kind of brought it to its, at that point, kind of pinnacle. What I did for that show was that I painted someone on Skype 
I then took that painting down the corridor from the studio, put a second computer in front of it, called myself on that computer to that painting and repainted that painting on a live sitting through Skype so that it was slightly distorted. I then repeated that process with the second painting so that it had one further step of, uh, of, of remove. And the final step was just pure squares of color, just a grid. Um, wow. I then placed those pieces as series. They're, they're one artwork, the, the, some, the three to six paintings that you get out of that process and placed them on these stands of metal that were kind of rotated into the room so you weren't even flush with the wall. On the back wall, I had a metal wall with um, more just abstract pixel paintings and a screen showing recordings of the Skype sittings. So there was another grid, like the final grids of talking heads of the sittings and then also of the paintings being painted through live sittings. Wow. So all of this was happening in the room. And then the final element to it was that I asked uh, Simon Fisher-Turner, the great um, musician to collaborate. He came up to the studio. I painted him on Skype in the studio with two computers back to back to have that be part of it as well. He recorded the sounds of the studio and, um, then wove a kind of 12 minute, it's like the sonic gravy that went with the main meal of the paintings that was in the space. So you had the sound, which is this beautiful, gentle flow. You can hear it on my website, wow. sadracop.com. And um, so it was, a, it was a very highly potentiated kind of distilled experience of the whole Skype thing. And I was like, right, that, that kind of did it. I'm, I'm now ready to move on and be in the same room with people. I find that whole process as well very interesting because, you know, this is something that you see with a lot of artists working today is once they stumble upon something that works and it's successful in a very external sense, um, they keep repeating this. But you're not doing that. You're you're genuinely, authentically exploring ideas that interest you. And once you've scratched that itch, it's now time to chase something else. I, personally, I love that. I really appreciate that. I would love to um, take a few steps back here, Sandro, and um, dive a little bit deeper into your story. I would love to ask you about your experience before you even became a professional artist. You know, I, we heard a little bit about your your background and having art be, you know, part of your your life growing up. But can you take us back to maybe your art school days and? Um, what it was like studying. And the reason I'm asking this and, and would love for you to kind of talk about this a little bit is this is a subject that I get asked about very often, um, which is, you know, people want to know, hey, do I go to art school? Do I go to university? How do I be an artist? And there's this natural thought and opinion out there that if you want to be an artist, you want to be any good, then you've got to, uh, you've got to go to, to an institution, an art school, an atelier, or a university. So how did you find your experience and how do you think that's affected your work today? Well, in many ways, the thing that to me feels like art school was my high school because I was working, I was an art major, like, I don't know, the German system, you go to a relatively high academic level, you go up to 19, age 19. And so my teacher there was very 
very passionate and very good at and and extremely prepared and he really like took us on heaps of excursions you know we went to florence and we you know we 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 really learned about stuff uh both in terms of uh 20th century art and in terms of um contemporary art and in terms of the old masters and everything right back to cave painting on a theoretical level and on a um, practical level, he was very passionate and very strict. And I will say, like the theory stuff, I was a straight A student in the practice, but in the theory, I was kind of limping behind because he was extremely ambitious with what he wanted us to be able to retain and put together. And I think that was very good also in terms of um, training me to dig deep and and think a lot like i love reading about art and then i'll hear a name i don't know and then i'll you know nowadays with the internet you just pull up you know i was just reading about the the moment for example when the um sort of main powerhouse of who was the forerunner in terms of the dominance of art in europe shifted from italy to france in the 17th century that didn't just happen. That was a plan. That was Cardinal Richelieu going, we have to dominate, getting all the good artists from Italy to Paris, making that stuff happen. And I love thinking about that and then thinking about people like, you know, Madame de Pompadour. I don't know if you know who she is, but she was one of the great kind of... Rococo painting wouldn't exist without her simply because she was a patron. I think the role of patrons is extremely important. And that's another thing, by the way, just going back to that and thinking about the obscene amount of money paid um, for the paintings and the, and the film, uh, The Price of Everything. Um, it's patronage. It's the same thing. It's the perversely rich kings of France or the dukes of, you know, the Medici dukes or something throwing the money at the artists and oftentimes in those days, of course, getting them to do stuff that they didn't necessarily want to do. But still, we have these things as a result of that. I think patronage is very, very important. And yeah. I have completely lost the thread of what I was talking about in the first place. So let's rewind. We're, we're, <laughs> so we're talking about we're talking about art school and now how art school has yeah. kind of um, okay. you know, has filtered yeah. into what you do um, now. So I don't have any academic training. I had a few painters that I talked to over the years who um, like relatively early on, um, I, I had someone who sort of said, okay, maybe stop reading comic books and start working from life. That was very, very important. Nonetheless, nowadays, I still really like comic books. I think there are some really great, um, really fantastic people like Mobius, the French, amazing illustrator, sadly now no longer with us. Um, and then when I came to New Zealand, I went to this art school called The Learning Connection with an X, which is a really fabulous institution with a really terrible name. And Jonathan, the dude who runs it, who's great, knows that I hate the name and I'm embarrassed to even name it here. But anyway, I met... Um, <laughs> So I'd say it if he was in the room. <clears throat> I met Freeman there, which was really fantastic. The first uh, <clears throat> first day at art school, there was a sort of meet of all the 70, 80-odd new intakes, and 
I, we ended up sitting at the same table and very quickly worked out that we were the only two who were going straight to honors. We were both going straight to the uh, third year. And also we were both German speakers because Freeman was an exchange student and he's very linguistically talented. So that's, that's where we met on the first day and we've been firm friends ever since. And um, the learning connection very much has the um, ethos of follow your passion and the money will follow. Uh, show as much as you can, as often as you can, get feedback, see what works. Um, there are elements of that that I, meanwhile, looking back, really disagree with. Like, I really think it's good not to show sometimes. I think if you're developing an idea, you should do that for yourself. You can show it to some friends, but you shouldn't be like, nowadays with social media, it's so tempting to be working on something and get exciting about it, excited about it. And then you put it on Instagram and you get some likes and then it's out there. And worst case scenario, it's something you were really excited about and it doesn't get the likes. And then you stopped yourself doing it because people didn't like it enough. I think it's great when you're by yourself in the studio to be able to get a little bit of feedback, but only with work that's kind of ready to go out in the world or preferably has been out in the world physically. I think while you're developing stuff, that whole thing of posting work in progress is, that is a dangerous and slippery addictive slope. So uh, that's my little rant there. Anyway, the learning connection is um, a great collection of freaks, a wonderful community of people there. And I just had a studio space shared with four others and they were all in sort of nine to five. And I would just stay till two in the morning to the point where the janitor gave me my own key because he was so sick of me knocking them up to let me out at the end of the day. I'd steal all the heaters from the other studios. I'd have like three heaters around me in the winter. Um, I'd be just working as much as I could. I also had the opportunity, particularly in the first half of the year there, to um, do everything else. I did performance. I did a couple of videos. I did darkroom photography. I did a lot of sculpture. I did lots and lots and lots of stuff. And then had a, oh, a moment of real emotional turmoil and went, nah, actually painting is the thing that I love to do. And since then, this is 2001, I've pretty much stuck with it quite consistently. And um, yeah, it was, it was great for that. But I started teaching there halfway through my first year of studying there and then sort of slid out the other end in one way or another. And I stopped teaching because the really, uh, in parentheses, good students in my classes, their drawings started to look like mine, which is fine. But I was like, I want to teach you how to paint like you. I don't want to teach you to paint like me. And I felt that I was in a weird way, compromising their integrity. And therefore I was like, whoa, I'm going to step away from this weird ball. And um, so I did. But um, all, all strength to Jonathan and the great stuff he's done. I think he's a wonderful man and I think it's a great institution. I then was showing and making a bit of money just doing like, you know, cafe shows and stuff. I didn't have a gallery, but hustling. Commissions here and there, doing okay. Um, 
and for that reason, didn't further study. In retrospect, I kind of wish I had. So if I, you know, if you have someone in my position looking back, I would have said, go to a big city, go to somewhere that has a real history, go to London or Berlin or New York or Rome, somewhere where you can go to museums every day and look at the old masters and where the new stuff is happening, really cut your teeth, build up a big community of friends, be supportive of other people, collaborate, really learn, and get the academic thing out of your system. Because if you have, you know, it'll save you doing so much homework. If you can just do that, if you like it, good. If they like you, even better. If they don't like you, also good. You and Freeman, I don't know, but I, I, I don't think he would mind me saying this, but Freeman going to, uh, you know, a, a proper New Zealand academic art school and hating it and really not getting on with his teachers in a way very much informed his process. And he's managed to build a blossoming and wonderful and amazing career out of a position of opposition to this academic paradigm. Great. Win. But he would never have had that had he not gone. It, and I always think um, there's a lot to be said for something being both the making and the breaking of you. I think it's good to have things break you. It's good to struggle. It's really, really good. And then you can move to the countryside and do whatever the hell you want and do all that. But I think fail. Go and do really difficult stuff. Don't save anything for later. Don't go and train as a dental technician so that you have something to fall back on. Nah, if you want to do it and you have to really want to do it, then do it and give it your all and, and do it in a big way and fall flat on your face several times. And if you can pick yourself up after that, then you're fine. I so appreciate you saying that. You're, you're, you're absolutely right, Sandra. I, um, I couldn't agree more. You really just have to sometimes in life throw things at the wall and see what sticks. And and be, by being afraid and I'm in an eye about this, again, I get so many emails and messages from people who talk about their plan B. And I, I, I hope I, I must come across as rude in some of these messages, but I, I, I'm quite harsh about it because I, I, I feel like, uh-uh, ain't no plan B. There's nothing else that you need to be doing besides focusing on what really matters to you. Go for your dream. And and again, I, I also agree with what you're saying about sometimes there's things that make and break you at the same time. Um, those are really profound, uh, illuminating, and and really important parts of our, our story. I, I, I am still, despite the fact that I felt like it was an epic fail, uh, I still am grateful that I, I went to the the institution I did because it did it really did set me up for the person that I am today, and um, I'm I'm genuinely happy about that because now now I know because I went you know, um, but for those people that were wanting to learn more technique you know because I had people going well they, they were equating my art school experience to what I'm doing now going well I want to go and study where you studied. But my work, and a bit like Freeman's work, this is a, a knee-jerk reaction to what we went through. And um, if if people want to learn a little bit more about the technique and the tradition, there's plenty of really fantastic ateliers and technical schools out there that will teach you just technique, and and will leave the kind of 
the uh, the academic stuff alone. Mm. See, I never had any technical training at all, and I am sometimes um, I'm 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 almost a little bit apprehensive of it. Like in theory, I love the idea of going to you know Florence and doing a intensive life drawing like renaissance technique sort of thing but at the same time i'm like that that's gonna mess with my my thing you know that i i i feel like there is very very little that you can't learn by making mistakes and you just have to take your time there's no rush you know art takes a long time that's the other thing i think it's there's there's this moment when you're usually in your early 20s and you just want to push and you just want to be in there and you want to you think that there's a kind of you know trajectory where you are into drawing and then you do a you know masters and then you do a bachelor and then you you know get that and then you do some residencies and then you get a gallery and then you you know, start to being sold second market and then you get a better gallery and then you get into museums and like, that's not the way it works. You're doing your thing in the studio. There's no through line. And if you have someone giving you a show and you're going to be able to do that, don't be looking at the next thing. Give that your all because who knows what the next thing's going to be. Maybe there's not going to be another show. Maybe nothing will sell. Doesn't matter. Give it your everything. And then take your time. Like, I, I think that there's a good, um, like, 20 years is a good time to think when you know whether, you're, whether you've got what it takes to be an artist. Give yourself at least 20 years. 20 years. Wow, that really Don't kind rush. of, it kind of yeah. puts it in perspective. Because, I mean, again, we, we are in such a rush nowadays. We want to be good yesterday, not give this thing the chance that it really needs. 20 years, that's, that's a decent chunk of time there. And like I said, and enjoy the peaks along the way. Like I've had shows at some of the, you know, I had a show at Lehman Morpin, which is really, really a very, very serious gallery. And it's just so important to enjoy that and to really go, yeah, I've, I've managed this. And it absolutely doesn't matter what happens next. Like just savor a moment. Don't, don't be in the rush. Look at for the little bright sparkly things out of the corner of your eye and and just you know remember that hmm. i don't know here i, I feel like i'm preaching preach brother preach the other the other thing while i'm at it sure. is to remember how lucky we are like if you travel sufficiently and um i'm in the very lucky position to have also been to be able to travel in in, in the most uh, absolutely elite kind of areas of the cultural landscape of this planet, but also to go to um, some very, very poor areas. And I always think, man, what if you're living in Langtang Valley in Nepal, where I went a few years ago, and you're four-day walk from the next village, and you're a two-day bus ride from Kathmandu and you're the next 
you know, Norman Rockwell in terms of your pet talent. You've got no perspective. You're just out of luck. I mean, there's a chance that you can make your own, pull yourself up by a bootstraps and hitchhike into town and somehow make it happen. But man, we're so lucky to be even in the position to be able to choose whether we want to go to art school or not. Oh, no, I'm not going to go to art school. I'm going to, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's very important to remember that, that mm. it's a gigantic privilege. And with privilege comes responsibility, I do think. And yes. so yes. I yes. think we have to use that. Uh, we have to use that privilege. Uh, again, a hundred percent agree with you, Sandra. We are we are incredibly fortunate to be living in this time with access to the technology and the position that we're in, and, and to be able to entertain these these ideas and and these dreams. Um, so so let me ask uh, then uh, again. I, I'm getting emails about this, and this is something that I enjoy asking other working artists about, is how they find working with galleries, the whole gallery system in general, and maybe what advice they would give to somebody who is wanting to entertain the idea of, of getting into a gallery and being represented. Well, the, the advice that I would give as far as galleries go is don't work with assholes. Like, you know, it's <laughs> it's so hard to do what we do anyway, you know, to put our soul out there and to assign meaning to these coloured blobs of dirt stuck to cloth that we make. And um, you need someone who feeds your creative spirit. And it's very, very difficult to get into the gallery system. And um, my sort of vague impression is that it's getting harder. So don't have any illusions about that. Um, hustle, do it yourself, do a pop-up, find someone who's enthusiastic about your work and will pay for the wine for the opening and will give you an empty shop to show in. Do it yourself until you can find someone who really you can jam with. And I'm super lucky to have found Patrick because he's someone who I'd want to be friends with and anyway, and it just so happens that he also is a gallerist. So we're, you know, happy to work together, but there is no reason to put yourself through any abuse. And I think that if a gallerist is doing their job right and selling your work, then I'm so happy to give them half the money. Um, I really, really am. But if someone is either not pulling their weight and giving it the everything that I'm giving it or making me feel that I in some way have to come begging or, you know, that it's not a mutually beneficial arrangement or... Um, any of those things, just find someone who you can call up when you go, you know what, is that sky done or should I put some more clouds on it or something, you know, stuff like that. Someone who's really interested in the minutiae of your process and who, when you are having that 2am, oh my God, what am I doing with my life thing? You can actually turn to and, you know, he'll pat you on the shoulder 
and also someone who, when you're doing it wrong, will tell you off and give you the hard truths and tell you, no, yeah. this is not good enough. You've got to keep mm. working. But you want someone who you've got a connection with. And that is more important than any prestige or um, financial compensation that you can have. If you're a talented, hardworking painter, you can do it yourself. You can get commissions, you can do pop-ups, you just graft and make it happen and, you know, go and model for life drawing classes or teach evenings or make coffees if you need to. Okay. But um, there's there's no reason to um, put yourself through any bad experiences. And also simply appreciate the fact that it's that it's really not easy i don't know there's a there's a stat that i at some point read for the city of london where there's like uh, i think they said there's an estimated twenty-five thousand artists living in greater london of those something like five thousand have some form of gallery representation of those something like 150 are actually making a living and of those something like 30 are really like blue chip second market people so from 30 to 25,000 i'm sure i've got those numbers completely wrong but it's that sort of a scale like there's a very 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 small pond and your any size of fish is going to have trouble in that pond so just don't sweat it and 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 try and you know do the best work you can and trust that if it really is good, then it will find your it will it will find its audience in the right way. And also, you you do have to be in in the right place for that. So you do have to be you know you do have to be personally present. I think you can't expect to be sitting in the back end of nowhere and get seen. You have to get in there. You have to make alliances. Get in there and talk to people as people. Gallerists are just people too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's my that's my thing. And some people are a little bit difficult to work with, and there's no reason to to indulge that. One of the things about you that I, I really enjoy is just how diverse your background has been in terms with the various applications that your art has had, um, working with film. And, you know, not only working with galleries and shows, but I, I wouldn't mind asking a little bit here about some of the film projects and some of the movie projects that you've been involved in. And, um, you know, wh wherever you want to go with that, I'd just love to hear more about it. Well, I love film and I've always loved film um, from the, you know, absolute popcorn culture to, you know, deep, deep, three cuts in a one and a half hour film, black and white, the Hungarian art house. I, I find it very, very inspiring if it's, if it's good, if it's my thing. And um, somehow always have, I mean, I have a big brother and he's been, he was originally very good at showing me some cool stuff. And um, my original introduction to the film world, the making of film came uh, when they were making the Lord of the Rings films in New Zealand, little film there. And that was around the time that I was uh, 
stopping teaching at art school, so I needed a further source of income. And um, they were doing reshoots for the second and third film. And I was living in the factory in Wellington. I don't know if you ever went to that place, but it was an amazing big uh, communal fat with about 25, 30 people sharing one stove and two showers and heaps of, like Taika Waititi used to live there, Freeman lived there, um, Jermaine and the Concords guys were there a lot. It's, it's It was a very, very uh, creative hotbed. And bunch of people there worked on the rings films and so i was an enthusiast i'd loved the books i'd actually spent months and months while i was reading them when i was maybe 13 14 painstakingly illustrating all the characters and drawing them so i had this whole like uh history with it and then i went in as an extra which was great because it was a bit of money but also, which was great, because it involved hours and hours and hours of waiting around, and you weren't allowed to take photographs. In those days, no camera phones. No one was able to have any record of how cool they looked when they were an orc or a Gondorian soldier. Happens to be that Sandra had a sketchbook along. And I was just drawing hard out all day, every day. I've got probably four or five um, big sketchbooks full of just drawings and a lot I've given away and sold too from the rings films and then another three sketchbooks from the Narnia movie which I went on to work on after that and where I met my sweetheart and um that was very precious and inspiring for me in that when you're painting it's quite lonely you know it's really you in the room with the thing maybe with one other person. And I do love working from life and having that sitting experience. But when you're making a film, you have hundreds, sometimes thousands of people all working together for that one moment when they call the role, everything goes quiet and it happens. And you have the people who've trained the horses, painted the backdrops, cooked the breakfast, driven everyone to set, made the costumes, and all that creative energy funnels through the little aperture on the camera. And it's an awesome feeling to be part of that, to be a tiny little cog in that big machine. It's very, very exciting. And it takes a certain type of person. I know some people found being an extra unbelievably boring, and I can understand that too. But um, I really like that. And then out of that, I kind of got into doing the drawings more seriously. So then on Narnia, the producers asked me to kind of chronicle it more with the drawings. And um, yeah, then um, my partner of now almost 15 years is uh, an actress. And so automatically I've been very heavily involved in the film world. And for example, um, I'm now doing stills photography on sets which is great because it allows me to be there you're really on the front line but you can be very creative you know the film camera nowadays is so easy to just take a, a screen grab from that but you still need the shots so a lot of the posters for um some of the films that i've worked on have come out of my camera and it's a nice little buzz to see any publicity for these projects that i've worked on and kind of go oh okay that's one of my shots and it's um yeah, it's very inspiring. And then there was 
another project which went even further, which is this great film called Okja, which is produced by Netflix, which um, my friend Bong Joon-ho made, the great director who just was decorated with the Palme d'Or and Cannes. And um, he's the South Korean master of uh, suspense and humor and all things weird. He's such a great guy. And um, he wanted to make a film that was a kind of live action homage to the great Japanese animator Hayao Miyazaki. And so he was telling me about this idea. We were sitting in the kitchen at breakfast and he was telling me about this idea about a huge genetically modified pig that um, was friends with a little girl in Korea and grew up in Korea and then got taken out of this idyllic environment in the hills of Korea to New York. And it was kind of a critique of factory farming and uh, the meat industry. And I just started drawing. I was just sort of doodling, doing these, doing these drawings and uh, gave them to him. And then a week later, I got a, an email from the producer asking if I'd like to come on board as one of the uh, sort of concept designers for the film, for the creature. And Okja was designed by this great guy called Hichul, who was the main guy. So I was using his designs to um, further develop them and put them in uh, other scenarios. Uh, and then there's a male pig called Alfonso, who only appears for a second in the movie, but he's entirely my baby. I made all of him. And it's just super exciting. And I, again, I feel so lucky. I just totally slid into that. Um, and it's a wonderful, wonderful film. And uh, anyone who has Netflix can watch it today. Fantastic. Well, I'm looking. Oh, and I was also a producer on it, but anyway, that's yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to getting into that film. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm a geek and I'm a little bit of a fanboy here. Can you tell me which of the three films uh, and where can I pause and see Sandro Cop in, in Lord of the Rings? Come on, <laughs> tell me. You know the time code. You know exactly. There's a not. Oh, dude, that's a whole another huge conversation. I mean, very very interesting things came out of that on their own because I had a brief and extremely exotic sojourn into the whole kind of fan convention world because I was an extra. I was a featured extra. And uh, you can see me in a number of places, but my big moment was standing behind Elrond at the wedding at the end of part three. That's there. You'll, you'll see me. I've not got a beard. I'm an elf. Elrond wedding done at the end of number three. Okay. Making a note of that. Yes. Um... Smiling, smiling, <laughs> smugly going. I'm in the movie. <laughs> well done. Uh, Sandra, this has been a real delight um, getting a chance to talk with you. Uh, before we, we wrap things up here, I'd, I'd love to know what's, what's next for you? What's next on this, this journey? What are some of the things that you're working on now and some of, this, uh, some of these new ideas that you're exploring that you feel comfortable sharing with us here? Um, I am working on a further incarnation of the eyes, uh, most probably in Salzburg. And then there is some super exciting, super huge stuff that I actually can't talk about yet. Oh, um, can't give us a little scoop. I'm Come on. Profoundly, <laughs> profoundly excited about it. Yeah. I'll, I, I can, I could, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, uh, uh, off the record, as it were, okay. at this point, uh, um, I can't. All right. Um, but let's just say it's going to be big. Fantastic. And um, then 
you know, like I said, I've always got a variety of, of fields that I'm plowing. I'm, um, after doing the very small kind of chibi eyes, I'm enjoying doing some larger things now. Um, and I'm, oh, the other thing that I'm super into at the moment, and I have no idea where this is going to go. And this is something where I am actually just indulging myself and putting them all on Instagram are these tree portraits. Like I love trees. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Huge dendrophile. And, um, I just find it so interesting to kind of try and identify a personality within a great old tree. And uh, it's also something that I can do everywhere. You'll, you'll find a tree here in Bogota. I went around the corner the other day and there are these fabulous old trees on the street and you just do a drawing of those. And again, there's only so much information that you kind of need to get down and then you can keep working on it, filling in the negative spaces and everything afterwards. So it's a nice thing to have going because I do travel so much. Um, I'll be doing those on, on, on planes, on trains, you know, waiting around. I'll just always have something to do. Um, so yeah, those will have their moment, but I think a show of those may be a little bit further away and I'm excited about putting those into into a bigger place, into a bigger frame as well. Sandra, I, I like asking this question in the podcast because it's something that I often think about. If you had the chance to go back and sit down with your younger self, would you offer any advice? And, and if you did, if you were to part some words of wisdom from your position of experience now, wh what would you say to your younger self? Well... I suppose that that speaks to the question of whether there are any regrets. And as far as my life as an artist goes, the only sort of vague regret that I have is that I didn't go to art school, a proper academic art school. Um, so in a way, I'd sort of go, come on, man, stick with it for another few years. The life is long and you've got time for this. See if this is for you. Maybe it isn't. Um, Having said that, maybe it would have messed me up in really bad ways. I don't know. I would like to have gone to art school to have gone to art school, not because I think it would have necessarily taught me anything that I don't have at my disposal anyway. Um, who knows? I may be completely wrong about that. Um, other than that, what I said earlier, I do think that it is... Um, important to go into the world go to a place where you can see real history see the really really important stuff and live there and meet people there and um go at that point in your life go into the big cities go into real because it's it's easy so that's another thing i mean i was in wellington which is a big-ish city but really on a global scale pretty tiny and I think, um, yeah, it's, it's really good to have some alliances with people around the world who are doing similar stuff to you. Again, speaking to the loneliness, you know, just to know that there are other people who are trying to graft away at similar questions that you are. It's, it's very, very important. Um, so, yeah, I would say 
go to art school and move to Berlin. <laughs> Brilliant. This has been a fantastic opportunity to, to meet you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, would you let people know out there where they could see more of your work, your website, your Instagram, etc.? Yeah. Um, and by the way, this was a delight. This could go on forever. I love it. We should do a sequel sometime. I really mean it. I've, I've enjoyed meeting you. And I, I, you've been on my radar for so long. <laughs> it's super awesome to finally have this conversation. Likewise. It feels like it's sort of been keyed up it needed to happen so it's been great um my name possibly the spelling is good s-a-n-d-r-o-k-o-p-p and i have a website sandrocop.com my instagram handle is sandrocop i don't do any other social media um and my instagram is all painting so it's um that's where you'll find the stuff and um yeah, if this goes out before sort of mid-September, come to Venice and see my show at the Palazzo Gramani Museum and otherwise keep an eye out for Edensperger in Berlin and Salzburg. Perfect. Sandro, thanks so much for being on The Creative Endeavor. Thank you. I really hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Creative Endeavor podcast and a huge thank you to Sandro Kopp for joining me. And once again, you make sure you check out his website. Simply visit www.sandrokopp.com and that is spelled S-A-N-D-R-O-K-O-P-P. And also you can be found on Instagram at Sandro Kopp. I personally really enjoyed this conversation. Sandra got me thinking about all kinds of things. And this is what I love about the podcast is having this back and forth about art and our creative journeys. I always find I get something out of the conversation and something else to apply to my creative business. And I hope that you found that as well. Maybe something to take away and to think about. Now, of course, you can find out more about me on my website at www.andrewtischler.com. And if you haven't already, make sure you check out those full tutorials that I have available. If painting is your thing and you want to learn a little bit more about painting landscapes and portraits, then I've got two full tutorials right now that I'm sure you'll find beneficial. I've got one on the winter landscape and another one on painting portraits. And I've got two female portraits there with two different approaches to how I go about painting portraits. I also have several more full tutorials in the works right now that I'll be releasing very, very soon. But also, while you're on my website, if you do happen to visit, which I hope you do, make sure you're subscribed. It's absolutely free to do so. Simply hit that subscribe tab into your name and email address, and I am in touch with my subscribers regularly. In fact, every time I release a podcast or a video on YouTube, I'm going to email my subscribers, and they get the YouTube version of these podcasts 24 hours ahead of the rest, which gives us a chance to interact and talk in that comment section before it goes live, and it's free for all to the public. But also as a subscriber, you get access to some special deals and exclusive offers when it comes time for me to release some of my full tutorials. So if that sounds good to you, then make sure you subscribe. Again, it's totally free to do so. Well, thank you once again for joining me. I've really enjoyed spending this time with you and I can't wait to be with you again in another episode of The Creative Endeavor.